Hello, I'm Alex Wright-King, a barrister at Third NS Exchange, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in this sunny day in the shed by Sadiq Dewan. Um, anyone who's ever watched or heard any of these before will know that I actually don't like introducing the person I'm speaking to. I really want them to introduce themselves. So Sadiq, over to you, please. Just, just introduce yourself to the people listening slash watching. Thank you, Alex. And yes, um, I must say it is uh, very sunny here in Manchester too, which is the normal. The rain is just a bit of an anomaly. <laughs> sunny Manchester. <laughs> Um, so I'm Siddiq Diwan, and um, I have a variety of roles, but today, hopefully, um, we will be speaking as an imam who has done uh, Islamic training, and also my current role is a as a chaplain at the Manchester Foundation Trust, where we cover uh, 10 hospitals from uh, from the ladies' hospitals, so NICU, to children's hospital, right up to adults hospital and north, south and central. Uh, my role um, as a chaplain involves a variety of things. And one of the things I think that is quite relevant to, to what you mentioned, Alex, is how we, as part of the wider multi-professional or multidisciplinary team, look upon best interests with regard to those of our patients uh, do, who do not have sufficient mental capacity to make a decision amongst themselves. And um, so hopefully we will be talking a little bit more about that. No, definitely, definitely. I really want to get into that. Uh, and actually one of the sort of kind of almost just right from the very beginning or really take us right back. One of the reasons I was really keen and I'm really happy you're in the shed and I'm really, really pleased you're here is I'm conscious that I don't really have much of an understanding about how Islam might think about just the core concept, for instance, like the idea of mental capacity. Um, and without wanting, because uh, it would be inappropriate to ask you as it to speak on behalf of the entire faith tradition and pronounce on everything within 20 minutes, it would just be really helpful for me and I think for people listening just to even get a sense of, of sort of some of the core ideas which might be relevant. You know, when people are thinking about somebody from that perspective. Absolutely, and I think you've put it very, very well that, look, um, yes, I am an imam, but obviously Islam is not a homogenous, uh, one-size-fits-all religion. There is a very, very wide view. I mean, it's always a joke, you know, that if you were to ask 10 imams the same question, you probably come with 15 different views. <laughs> And yes, so I can offer an opinion, obviously not the opinion. And I think that's probably the right way because I am no authority to speak on the one and a half billion Muslims at all. Um, yeah, so for, uh, this is a really interesting question, um, Alex, because again, mental capacity, first of all, how we define it, are there parallels to the legal definition? Uh, what, how does it compare and contrast from Islamic understanding? Um, so if we look into the, the Quran, as we would normally do from an Islamic perspective, so the hierarchy in understanding Islam normally is to go to what we call Nas, Nas meaning the scriptural text, which is the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him. Um, so there is, um, we can glean from their learnings 
Obviously, the context was very, very different 14 centuries ago, but there are uh, principles that we may extrapolate to cases that we will experience now. So there is talk uh, in the Quran and in the Sunnah about a person who may lack mental, the mental capacity to make a decision that is in his or her best interests. So what do we do about that? Then there is the concept, for example, if it is a child or if it is an adult and they have what we call a wali. Wali meaning the legal guardian, it might be a father, mother, it might be you know, somebody who has responsibility for that person. He or she will then be tasked to act in his or her best interest, the person who can't do so. Uh, if that capacity, that might be capacity that is, um, you know, long term, that the person does not have this capacity, it might be a short term thing, for example, uh, interesting one, a person just collapses, you know, and now it's we have to work in our in the best interest, should we do CPR or shouldn't we do, I mean, it could be as short as that and as long as that. So the general rule is the person himself or herself, who does not have the capacity to, to make a decision, to make a decision bearing in mind his or her best interests, uh, first of all, will not be liable in the sense that Islamically, if they can't pray, they, they don't need to pray, if they can't fast, we just did Ramadan a, a few weeks ago, and they don't need to fast, uh, they're not obligated and mandated to fast. Similarly, if they come into possession, this is what the Quran specifically talks about, if they come into possession of any wealth through inheritance and they're not wise enough or not do not have su sufficient capacity to, to know how to spend it or when to spend it, then their transactions will not be considered legitimate and they have the right to revoke that transaction uh, from an Islamic perspective. So there are a variety of things. So what would then happen is that uh, in Arabic, we have a term called marfu'ul qalam, which means that this person, the, the, this person's, uh, so to speak, actions or inactions will not have a bearing and consequence in the afterlife as the accountability and reckoning, etc. And similarly, in, the, in, in this very life, as to regards to transactions, as regards to, for example, uh, marriage, etc., etc., etc. Then what happens will be that wali or the person who uh, is designated by the state or by uh, convention in that time who will look after this person is very, very strictly in Quranic terms told to act very much in the best interest of uh, this person. So the Quran talks about if uh, there is, for example, an orphan in your care who lacks best uh, uh, capacity to, to, to know what's in his or her best interest. Then for you, you can look after the wealth of that orphan, use it for that orphan. However, it must be done very, very scrupulously. And you have to justify how much to use, when to use, etc. But it's not, it, the, the other point is that it's not as restrictive that you just can't do anything and the poor guys, you know, going hungry and you're thinking, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. Coming back to the, to where I work more, and where I'm a bit more comfortable is in the, in the hospital, 
So for example, the patient, a lot of times in ICU and other places uh, are, are sedated and can't make any judgments of what is best for them. Uh, first of all, autonomy would, uh, um, would, would, would trump all, so to speak. So if they had that, that um, autonomy to make a decision to treat or not to treat, then we would respect that. Even if it meant that there is some harm the person may accrue by, 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 by not being treated, but if he's done it and he has full mental capacity to do so and has been able to weigh the benefits and burdens and still he or she goes ahead with it, then I think Islamically, we would have to go ahead with it. And, but of course, where they can't do that, and I think this is what we're talking about, uh, we will then go on to the next part, which is best interest. Now, this is very interesting, but I'll pause here for a little while, just if you have any, uh, so far, any uh, reflections. Gosh, that was just marvellous. Thank you so much. Such a clear kind of exposition and, and going from the wide angle, zooming into the zooming into the specifics. So thank you so much. And one thing which has really resonated or really I was sort of wanting to think about as you were talking, and I think this really crystallises at this point, is to what extent is the, the, the duty to act in the best interests of the person a duty which is informed by what the person wants or doesn't want. So assume the person doesn't have capacity. So we're thinking in a best interest term, either in a purely secular mental capacity act term or, or, or kind of Islamic idea of the duty to act in best interest. How much is that about, as it were, objectively, this is what seems best. And how much is it kind of informed by, I really got to take seriously what this person's indicating they want or don't, don't want, if that, you know, how, how that tracks through. Okay, that's a really interesting question because it's got so many layers and dimensions and how do you unpick it all? Um, you would, I mean, first of all, the first question would be who is, who can and who should act in the best interest? Yeah. Just to give you an example, you know, um, when we have these very complex cases, you know, the parents, we call it, I think I've called it the five Ps or so, but who is best, who is best, who is, uh, has the greatest say in what best interest, which is a very subjective term, um, and who, who should be taken? Is it the, the parents? Is it the pediatrician? Is it the professor of ethics? Is it the president? <laughs> like we had the cases that the president waited in, you know, or is it even, uh, I, I didn't get a P for, for judge, so I'm just going to say judge. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you yes. can help me next time, Alex. So, so who is it? And then the last one, the sixth P is the most, it's the patient himself or herself, but unfortunately that patient. So when we come to this, that that person, so if that person has indicated, uh, he or she has indicated that he, so he or she obviously had sufficient capacity, then lost that capacity, but before losing that capacity, didn't make any indication in the will or in an ACP or whatever it is, or even verbally did communicate this to the wider family that in the event of A, I wish for B to happen, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would be of paramount importance. A person can, within the parameters of reasonability, to do so. Of course, if a person, and this is a bit tricky, if a person did say, look, should I lose my capacity, et cetera, but um, then I, I, I want uh, A or B to, to act, 
out in my, in my interest in depriving C, then that's a bit tricky because again, we, we have to look at it in a wider remit. That first of all, uh, what the person is saying is truly in his best interest, but not at the cost and the harm of, 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 of somebody else. So if it is legally and uh, morally right, what the person has said, I think definitely, then, then there is definitely scope to carry out the best interest, but should it contravene another person's rights, etc., then obviously you wouldn't be obligated to do so. So I think whether, however it is communicated, that would be, I think, the, I think that was the first question, I think. Yes. I think you mentioned something else that I... No, no, no. Well, that was really, I was really sort of interested in the, in the crux of that question being that the kind of centrality, you know, how much the person's wishes and feelings track out. And, and that's extremely interesting to hear. Can I just tease out one thing? I mean, it's, it's a sort of question I've always wondered about, and, and I because, partly because I read it sometimes in judgments, and I sort of just want to, to, to take this opportunity to inform myself better. The extent to which, assuming we know nothing about the person's wishes and feelings, you know, we haven't got a situation where someone's made very clear that, for instance, they either would really wish life-sustaining treatment to continue or they've got a very strong view that they wouldn't. What, what does the Islamic tradition say? Again, appreciating it's a broad brush and, you know, we could get two answers out of you because you're one imam. We could get at least two answers out of you. But <laughs> what does Islamic tradition say about the extent to which there might be a duty or otherwise to continue life-sustaining treatment? So, in other words, you know, the, the clinicians... At what point is it appropriate for a clinician to say, actually, you know, I know nothing about this person's feelings. I can't get anything out. I can't get the family to help me. I just need sort of, it'd be interesting just to get an understanding of well, what's the duty there. Okay, so this is, again, really uh, uh, interesting question for myself, because this is something, sadly, I almost have to deal with almost every second day. We have such a big trust, so we are, uh, you know, these questions come about. And I really, first of all, appreciate and want to acknowledge the healthcare professionals who are, you know, confronted with the choices they make. And I have no doubt every healthcare professional who comes here wants to act in the best interest. Very, very, you know, everyone gets up in the morning to do their best. And I think that's where we start from, and everyone would do. Again, that subjective nature of what, because the parents will say, this is the this is the best interest according to me. And the clinicians are saying, this is the best interest according to me. Now, again, like I said, when we go to what is it, how do we determine what that patient would have wanted? Yeah, there is no uh, verbal or, or written, you know, indications with regard to that. Um, I think there is that scope. Now, this I say very, very hesitantly, because we must understand that when these decisions of LST, life-sustaining treatments, there is a, already a lot of emotion around it. And a lot of time as human beings, we can't escape being human. <laughs> and because of that, we bring that emotion into that decision. And and the reason I say that is because many a time, you know, when parents, when families are in this situation, almost sometimes they seem to think they're fighting the system. It's an us versus them. And it creates a, a, a sort of siege mentality. And, and it's about, oh, yeah, yeah. And then we start to think and interpret 
signs of what the person has may have said or may not have said to try and get it into their, uh, into what we think is in their best interest. Knowing, uh, sometimes forgetting, we're projecting our feelings and emotions and the heightened situation we are in on what that patient might want. And then the other thing, um, Alex, is that look, many a times we wouldn't ourselves have ever been in a situation of life sustained, needing life sustaining treatment to really appreciate what it means. Yeah. I'll give you one example, you know, that one clinician recently shared with me and I thought was really powerful. So, I mean, just like having a ventilator. For me and you, we just see the person, oh yeah, it's keeping him alive. But for that person, you know, driving at 30 miles an hour with your head out and the wind tunneling into you can't be a pleasant experience. And you didn't ask for it. And this was put for you. And, 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 we, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm doing it in the best interest of this person. So again, we have to be really, really careful with regard to how we interpret in the absence of very explicit information about the person. Uh, at that. So one is because of the situation. I wanted to mention this point before, and this is why I'm a bit passionate about this, is that I remember an instance, you know, where we had this child a long time, he was, or she was prevented and was getting all the treatment, etc. And for months and months, it's, it's, not a, it's not a normal environment, Alex, to be around in a PICU with all very, very, very sick children around. But then as human beings, we are incredibly adaptive and we adapt to it. I think that be, the abnormal becomes the normal and therefore we make judgments and decisions based on where we are. And one of the most sort of um, moments of clarity came for this, uh, this family was where they came one day and the child had been weaned off because they had to do normal cares. And this was the first time in months they saw the child without any tubes. Normally, he or she has lots of tubes and all mm. those sort of, and that had become normal. And when they saw this child lying there like a child would, they thought, what am I doing and what have I been doing? This is how my child should be. And, you know, the, the family were like, no, 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 we don't want to intubate this child again. And they said, are you sure? So now I know this is about children and as parents, we must act in, but I think there is a wider point. That yeah. first of all, we must be very careful to project what we think and interpret to be the best interest in a conversation. Um, you know, we had over iftar one day, <laughs> a conversation, etc. And I think that's what it is. So what I would, what I would, I have found personally very helpful is um, to get the family members' opinion. I think that's important because, and why I think it's important because I will make a decision, you will make a decision, the clinician will make a decision, but the impact and the consequences of the decision will stay with the family forever. So we can go and go on to the next patient and next patient and next patient, but they at least say must uh, account for something. How we weight it ultimately, I think that's a different matter with that. So these, I think, are the two broad points. So I think as we in, in medical, the medical world, as you would know, I think sure better than I am, that we not, we, we, we've gone far away from that patriarchal doctor knows best to an SDM shared decision-making process. And I think it's the right way, but again, what are the, uh, we need to have more conversations of what it actually uh, means on the shop floor and how it translates to a best interest of our patients.
Oh gosh, there's so many more questions I want to ask and I, I'm, I'm really struggling with the time because there are just so many things I want to cover. I think one thing I want to make sure I have really enabled people to understand because you've just been brilliant about sharing kind of the insights to get people to get a kind of first clue. But if you're working with a patient or you're working with somebody and you know that they're Muslim and you're wanting to make sure that you're 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 faithfully responding to making sure that you're meeting their needs and you're you're trying to be as it were sorry really culture just culturally competent but it's just dealing with this person as a human and understanding where would you recommend that people go to inform themselves I mean where would you you know who can who would you turn to what sources of information might you be suggesting other than everybody should ring you up because I think you've yeah. probably <laughs> you've got other things to do be doing with your time but just as a sort of where people you know what what you might recommend one wise person once said Alex and I don't know if you'd agree with me uh, I can recommend what you shouldn't do and he said um he said you never sh you should never google two things your health and religion <laughs> Because if you Google health, you should have been dead 10 years ago. Yep. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not you, maybe me. No, no, I know exactly what you mean, yes. <laughs> so now what, what we should do, I think, I think it's always good to pause and reflect and ask ourselves a few questions. The first is why? Why do I want to do option A? So for example, with regard to, to um, uh, treatment, you know, to treat or not to treat. There's six situations. Why do I want to withhold treatment? Why do I want to initiate treatment? Why do I want to escalate treatment? Why do I want to limit it? Why do I want to de-escalate it? And why do I want to stop it? You know, each one will have the benefits and burdens, etc. But I think this is really at the heart of it. Why? And I think we need to tease out, is it for me? Or is it for that patient in the bed mm -hmm. that will bear the brunt of it? And I think as every human being at a human level, each one of us can pause and reflect. And, you know, not only ask that one why, but, you know, they say ask six whys. So you cut the levels of to really why you want to do it. And I think everybody can do that. And I would, uh, Islamically, we normally say, and, and, and you know, as Muslim, most of them will be, I, I, think, I suppose they would pray. Now, we must be very careful of what a term called spiritual bypassing, where, uh, what does this mean? So this means that, you know, I pray, but I really want it to happen. So I interpret every sign as the answer to my prayer. Mm -hmm. In the sense, I've, I've closed my mind and just wanted to see what I see. But so we really must open our mind. And, and one of the things somebody has said, I think, he said, always include in your, when you want to really get a good understanding, somebody who disagrees with you, because you don't want to create echo chambers. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, the, the, the tragedy of, I don't know if you're allowed to say this, but the tragedy of uh, with social media we have where we just, uh, and the algorithms and AI just feed us what we want to hear. And I think that's because we are not acting in our own, we're acting for them. What else can we do? I think as Muslims, I think we should, I firmly as a believer believe that to do read the Quran with an open mind, do read, uh, take recourse to the Sunnah of the Prophet with an open mind, be ready for it to mold you, but don't want, don't mold it to what you want. That's open mindness, I think it is. 
many, many hospitals have excellent uh, healthcare chaplains, much better than <laughs> me. Uh, do if you can, and just as an opinion, you know, as somebody once a family said recently, you know, we want you to, to be that MDT. And I said, why? I said, you can be our critical friend <laughs> because we are so emotionally invested. We want somebody independent, impartial, who may be able to guide us and you can do that. I think, so those I would say are, are a variety of things that a person can do. And ultimately, look, we are only tasked according to our human, we must understand our human limitations. We must be a bit humble when we are making this sometimes literally life and death situation, uh, decisions of consenting to it. And I think, yeah, and um, if we everything fails, then phone, uh, what's it, SX49, Chambers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, we, we are very much the last recourse. Sadiq, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think the patients and the families and the clinicians in your hospital trust are just incredibly lucky to have you. And I'm really, really glad that we've been able to just be able to share a little bit of your knowledge and your wisdom. It's above all your wisdom with people. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure.